netcasting from Chicago, Los Angeles, and Sydney. You're listening to this week's FX Podcast from FXGuide.com. We're proud to say that this podcast is brought to you by our friends at Boundary Visual Effects, who offer off-site assistance in keying, roto, tracking, rig removal, and compositing with a highly trained and tight-knit team of artists. Boundary VFX members have worked as TDs and supervisors and artists on some of the biggest visual effects films of the last few years, such as Harry Potter, The Smurfs, and The Avengers. Boundary offers the experience, budget, and quality that your next VFX project deserves, so check them out at boundaryvfx.com or on Twitter at Boundary VFX. Thanks for joining us for this FX podcast, where we take our passion for visual effects and bring you in-depth interviews with visual effects artists around the world. The FX podcast was started to give us a place to dig deep on the technical side, talk one-on-one with top visual effects artists, advance the craft of visual effects, and pay respect to hardworking creative people producing amazing work. This is your chance to hear directly from the source, from the front lines of visual effects. In our previous podcast, we talked about the reimagining of a TV show, Dark Shadows, from the late 60s, early 70s. Today, we look at the film Battleship, which is the name of a popular board game. Battleship was directed by Peter Berg. The project was to begin filming in Australia, but changed location when tax incentives were not strong. Filming moved to Hawaii, Los Angeles, and Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Mike Seymour speaks with Grady Kofer, visual effects supervisor for Battleship. Let's join that interview now. What the heck is that? Got unknown surface contact. Rich T.O., I've got nothing on the scope. Let's get a team in a rip to investigate this thing. Over! You're on it! You know, during kind of the, the that early kind of pre-production process of getting scripts, I was working down in, uh, at Film 44, which is uh, Pete Berg's offices. And, I mean, we knew going in that, you know, a movie battleship with, uh, you know, naval warfare and, and alien ships, uh, you know, battling on the sea, that there was going to be a massive amount of, uh, of water simulation. But it, it really went beyond that. I mean, we it, 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 obviously a lot of it takes place during the day. There were a lot of different varying scales to the kind of simulations. I must admit, that and, was the thing that struck me, that we had this this big range of scales, which for people that maybe are less familiar with fluid sims is a fundamental issue because some fluid sim approaches work incredibly well at pouring glass on the desk level but don't scale out to an ocean. And you were basically doing everything from close up to, to extreme, weren't you? No, that's right. And and the sheer number of shots uh, that were represented in these sequences as well. And it wasn't uh, just ships on the water, um, you know, dealing with ocean surfaces and maybe wakes, which then themselves are actually can be quite challenging. But the way Pete had con- kind of conceived of this story, he wanted the alien ships to start beneath the surface of the water and then to breach up through the surface. So we have these kind of very dramatic uh, breaches, you know, and we, we referenced a lot of uh, um, submarine breaches um, to, to kind of inform the looks of those. But then once they were on the surface of the water, he wanted them to um, recycle the water. 
And by that, I mean they, they have these ships that suck water out of the ocean, and then we've kind of populated the, the surface of these ships with water ports, and the water would kind of uh, cascade over the surfaces of these ships with all of these very kind of intricate um, kind of collisions and splashes. So when we were kind of planning this, uh, this show um, when we, you know, at, at the outset three years ago, and we we were kind of breaking down scripts and, and figuring out how many how many shots we had based on the tool set that we had at the time, which we thought was was actually quite robust after all of the uh, you know after Poseidon and, and the and the great kind of pirates trilogy that. We, there really wasn't enough time <laughs> to accomplish the movie um, in, in, in the years to come. We, uh, with all of our bids, we were about 500 man weeks over, and, um, and we knew at that point we were going to have to kind of reinvent and, uh, and kind of step up the way we do uh, water scene. We called it the Battleship Water Project. And we got all of our R&D guys together, and uh, Willie Geiger, our uh, CG supervisor here, who uh, has a great kind of history of, of, um, of CG water uh, under his belt already. And we kind of fleshed out this, uh, this kind of this, uh, pipeline, this water pipeline, and we started building, um, building tools to kind of, um, to kind of advance our, our, um, our workflow. And... Um, out of that, it, it started with, uh, as you, you probably know, we still, um, for the very large-scale simulations, are still based on kind of a level set process, a particle level set, where everything's kind of broken down into grids. But um, we did lots of things to kind of optimize those grids. So we'd have about, you know, like, say, 5 million cells, and we can run what we call kind of the base simulation. So if you have, uh, as I was describing, a, a ship, which we called a stinger in this movie, a kind of complex geometry and all of those collisions um, start influencing that, that grid, right? You have all of the kind of deep water kind of waves and reactions. So all that that ocean kind of sloshes around. But even at a grid size that might resolve at about, let's say, a two-foot square, you're losing – um, a lot of detail there. There's a lot of fine detail in these very kind of complex water structures that you just don't get out of just a pure grid solution. So um, on top of that, we we uh, kind of developed, it's kind of a, like a flip-pick solver for um, doing particle-based simulation. So from one scale, so you start wide, it goes grid. Then you kind of work down to a finer grain. Within those grids, you you can splash up millions, let's say, let's say like 20 million um, particles. And then each of those, you're building grids around them. And we, uh, we had a pretty slick R&D guy developed, which would kind of build these grids on the fly. And these grids um, weren't a fixed size. You could actually kind of optimize them or shrink them down based on how close you are to this event. The grids would kind of scale and, and, and could resolve to the size of a pixel. So you're, you're always kind of creating these splash particles at a very small size. And and then we would mesh all of those particles and build that into one volume. So you start with a particle level set and then mesh that up into these complex particle structures. And then that would become what we called our meshed water, which would have all of your typical kind of refraction, reflection, and specularity, and and scatter and uh, and churn. Um, so, so let's just let's just look at that a little bit in further detail. So we've got a particle sim that's giving me basically a huge particle field of um, of things that are being influenced by the vectors of the water fluid sims. But but getting that particle structure to something that I can render, I have to polygonalize it, and that that meshing step 
just just walk me through that again because that's really critical in getting something that doesn't uh, look blobby and doesn't look flickery and and actually holds up. And it seems to me an astonishing um, cohesion you've got between that very fine stuff and, of course, the bigger stuff that you're talking about. Right. And I mean, one of the keywords you said there, obviously, um, uh, blobbies can be a problem, but the flickering, the kind of temporal nature of meshing is very tricky because you um, you have to decide when um, particles uh, and how they're kind of clustered together and at their basic kind of at their, at their little proximities to each other, at what point should they be meshed together? And at what point do those structures pull apart enough to to uh, to separate and to become um, separate globules that that are uh, that are kind of traveling alongside each other, um, and, uh, and sorry to interrupt you, lot. but there's there's the globbingness that you just described, but you also touched on another one there, which is you get that kind of webbiness where you don't get the surface tension working correctly either. So you've also got sort of the big globs, and then there's the kind of thin where it breaks into the the webbing. Sorry to interrupt, but those are both problems that you seem to have tackled. That's right. Yeah. So as as um, as this meshed water starts starts pulling apart and separating, and you get all of those structures, you have to decide when to break uh, pieces or globules free from that mass. And and uh, we would we had ways of kind of deciding at what point do you mesh that, and at what point do those become um, uh, particles themselves. And that's where we. On top of all of this, we built a whitewater tool, which would decide at what point do these uh, does our meshed water, which be, then becomes these kind of separated, webbed kind of uh, globules, when those start atomizing, they break up into mist, into spray and mist, and so uh, and that might generate. Um, you know, hundreds of millions of particles at that point. And we had, you know, uh, shots in, that ranged from half a billion to a billion particles. So it, it, it's all of those things working together because in a way, sometimes as, as a structure pulls apart, the, what bridges the gap in between starts to atomize and becomes mist. And the, the real selling point when, when we really uh, found uh, kind of a, a tipping point into um, finding ways of kind of injecting lots of details when we started building these kind of air simulations around all of these events. Um, and that meant uh, a, we started, we actually used our plume tool, uh, which maybe uh, we've talked to you about in the past, which is kind of our, our tool for doing um, smoke and fire simulations. And it, is, it gives you very detailed uh, air simulations, right? So if you have, uh, if you have a ship that breach, breaches up through the surface of water, it, it churns the water in it, and you get all of these vortices of air kind of rotating, let's say, underneath the wings, maybe as it spreads its wings apart. So as you go through, I call it kind of the evolution of a water droplet, as you start with a, 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 a surface of water, which becomes a meshed splash, and then that atomizes into, into mist, um, as that water becomes less and less dense, it becomes more and more influenced by these air fields, right? So you're, the mist that peels off of it gets lighter and lighter and then starts swirling in all of the wind. And, and the structures themselves, the actual water structures, uh, 
influence that airfield. So you get all of these vortices that that are rotating around splashes. Um, And that was, for us, a big kind of threshold. Once we had kind of found... uh, uh, the key to um, to representing those airfields around our splashes it, uh, it 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 really kind of injected a lot of realistic detail so how much is your fluid sims extendable into uh, sort of volumetric uh, stuff because obviously there's a central tenant of some water sims which is the incompressibility of them which normally we don't need to worry about in gases either unless we're going to to thermals this water doesn't seem to be responsive to thermals it seems to be still is it the same basic logic from a maths point of view working between the it is i mean the the incompressibles come in with the, with the airfields and and that's where uh we would we kind of leaned on uh plume to kind of give us to to give us that kind of um where we could blend from let's say particle mist to just a volumetric representation of density in the air so really at a, at a certain point you don't want to be looking at dots you just want to look you just want to be sensing a volume like a fog mm. so um and that was uh, especially with things that are very, very large scale, you need to, you want to see structure, and then you want that structure to have kind of a volumetric component, which doesn't necessarily resolve to dots. Now, I interrupted you before when I was referring to that webbing, which is the sort of sheets of water. And when the ships are coming out of the water, you have this water sheeting that's that sort of fine layer of just holding it together surface tension-wise over the the rigid bodies that are coming through the surface. At the early stages, the water's still quite thick, but in the latter stages that water is really thinning out. Did that pose any problems? No, I mean, it's, yeah, it's interesting you pick up that detail because we were really looking at a lot of waterfalls for reference and those kind of cascades and how things naturally um, kind of vaporize and atomize over time. You know, water likes to stick together and then, um, but as it, as it falls, it starts to, um, it, it, starts to break up into little globules and then into mist. And, you know, um, a, a great thing here at ILM, we have a great kind of library of, of water pours on, on, you know, on green screen or black screen. And so we can, we, I, we brought a lot of those online just to kind of reference um, the kind of the physics of that uh, and how it changes over time. And so we did try to represent that as well as we could. So we've been talking about the structure, as it were, which gets us uh, – polygonalized to a point that you can hand it over but you touched on this air thing but the big phenomenon of water when churned is it aerates quickly to an opaque surface so the actual properties of the transmissive nature of the water becomes to to use a rough term milky as opposed to you know clear liquid how how is the rendering and the shading affected by this and what point do you know to get your water to be white water it actually, yeah, we, um, you know, we we looked at you know hours and hours of footage of uh, uh, we had great kind of collaboration with the Navy, so we got a lot of um, of Navy footage and of say ships at sea. Um, also, they do you know they do sink exercises where they actually take uh, these decommissioned ships out in the ocean and blow them up, and you get these great depth charge kind of explosions. Um, Water in, in those kind of scale events where they're very ballistic, let's say for a breach, it actually becomes white water very, very quickly. And white water um, scatters light very, very brightly. And so it actually becomes, uh, yeah, as you say, becomes opaque very, very quickly. Um, and, you know, so there were on the render side, there were a lot of things we did to kind of represent um, a churn. Uh, which, you know, kind of an internal volume and scatter within the water, um, but also 
that are whitewaters represented both on on top of the surface, kind of in a foam representation, but also beneath the surface in kind of a cloudy formation as well. When you're doing a sim, it's designed to replicate what would happen with physics because it's a simulation. But, you know, reasonably a director could want something that's more cinematic or just for some reason looks cooler going left instead of right. What, what sort of tools did you have? Are there any new tools in terms of being able to direct that or you just have lots of sort of hidden objects to kind of push water around to get it to go the way you wanted it to go? There are tricks, but you're right. I mean, especially uh, with Peter Berg, who, um, as you know, he he tended to really like some uh, very dramatic, uh, very kind of spectacle-like events in this movie. And so uh, we would always kind of start out with kind of the physically accurate and then art directed into areas that we felt were um, more conducive to kind of telling the story within that particular shot. And often that made that meant made it, making it kind of bigger and stronger and kind of more bombastic. Um, but one of the tools we kind of developed um, when we were finding ways of kind of injecting details into things, we kind of created ballistic particles so that you could actually, um, as you populated, uh, you birthed kind of these par- these particles, let's say, during a simulation, uh, we could represent it. They would just be these little red kind of uh, explosive particles over time. Um, or maybe you gave it a certain window, like over a few seconds, these particles would kind of explode and kind of have kind of depth charge-like qualities to them. So it was a way of kind of injecting a lot more kind of explosive or ballistic kind of uh, detail to a splash. When I was watching the the beginning sequence, when they first discover the uh, alien ships they've come up, it's kind of a quiet piece in the sense we've not yet sort of engaged in a, in some of the hectics, but you've got the guys in a basically a runabout dealing with you know huge structures and and it started to dawn on me that I wasn't quite sure how I'd approach that because in one sense you want to have the guys in a real sort of dinghy bouncing around in the water and another I thought tracking that would just be nearly impossible because there's just nothing to track to and then combining real water to digital water would become some kind of nightmare what what so how did you sort of solve getting your live water with your real water and or was it the case that the guys were never on uh, out at sea and you just to, they didn't have to worry about things bouncing around at all. <laughs> yeah, there were a lot of discussions about that, and we kind of amassed a lot of reference of, uh, of let's say, shots from either movies we've worked on or other movies that where they've decided to kind of go uh, go the tank route and uh, get a tank and slosh water and go against a big green or blue screen and then extend water off of it. And, you know, we, we kind of... Uh, discovered pretty quickly i mean for pete who you know who has a he has a boat and you know he's uh he's a big kind of uh you know a military and navy uh you know buff and his dad is a navy historian it was all about going out in the real ocean and capturing the real thing i mean the uh, a lot of the tank uh reference that we had um would get choppy very quickly. It isn't like you've got a lot of those kind of great history kind of wind swells going in one direction, maybe a, a, a faster kind of wind chop going in the other direction and the kind of complex kind of connection of those two kind of swells colliding in front of you. I mean, that's there, uh, what, you know, deep water, um, uh, you know, deep water physics uh, is very recognizable, I think. And, and we knew we were going to have very, kind of protracted sequences in this movie that uh, we wanted to look very realistic. So um, what came out of those discussions was uh, we needed to shoot out at sea. And so our plan was we kind of front-loaded the production schedule. We um, 
we had a barge, which uh, we built uh, some, in some cases, some uh, set pieces or partial set pieces on top for the sequence you're t- talking about, which is kind of this first contact. It's Hopper mm. and his crew um, out on this rib, and they go and kind of uh, – there's a, there's a bit of this uh, – um, you know, an, an unknown, an unidentified object kind of floating out there in the water. Um, there's a bit of a wingtip. Uh, we called it a little bit of an island that stuck up out of the water. And we built that set piece and, and uh, affixed it to the end of, uh, of this barge. And so we took this barge off of the coast of Hawaii, and you know you kind of drop anchor, so it's um, so it's static. And then, well, the, sorry, sorry to interrupt, but being a sailor, yeah. uh, and and I do a lot of boating stuff myself. Sure, uh, uh, an anchor doesn't give you static; it gives you it gives you at least not moving uh, with the tides. But you've got a camera that's presumably moving because of the shot, just that what the DOP wants on a barge that is inherently moving, filming water that inherently is moving Absolutely. with something on it that's meant to be reacting to it i mean i'm just just i don't want to skip over it just i mean i feel like your tracking guys must have really pulled one out of a hat no because- no exactly i mean in, in a way um we knew that's what we were going to get and and uh and that that was going that was going to be a tough part of this process um because nothing we- is locked down Nothing is locked down, and we had we had been building, working on a you know a tool for doing kind of water tracking uh, for Pirates Four, which and and we uh, we kind of further developed that for this show, where it, you could you know you can um, track lots of objects on the surface of the water, knowing that that surface is malleable, that those those particular details are not all moving exactly in the same direction at exactly the same speed. But as a cluster, they're generally moving in a certain way. And from that, you could kind of start driving camera. Um, so that plus any detail that you would get in, uh, in, with, with, in skies. So, you know, uh, any good cloud detail um, was great. And then anything <laughs> you could do to kind of grab onto um, either swells or whitewater on surfaces and do kind of cluster-based uh, tracking. So yes, there was a lot of of uh, difficult kind of camera tracking for that sequence. But I think the payoff is that the camera work um, isn't locked down, and it's actually a bit of a giveaway when your when your camera is kind of dead and yeah. you're seeing the ocean water slosh beneath you. Um, it can't be real. You're either in a, in a helicopter hovering, or you're on, you're off a dock, or um, or the water is synthetic. So there's something actually, especially in kind of this build-up sequence, where you're kind of playing peekaboo a little bit. You're kind of as the camera, if you're kind of at eye level on a rib. Um, I mean, you know, if you're a sailor, I mean, there's, there's, you're not even seeing the horizon half the time. And mm. it doesn't take swells of very large height to be able to kind of occlude that object and occlude parts of that, uh, of that horizon at any given time. And it actually makes for, I think, a more suspenseful kind of a sequence and reveal. And it's also really hard to get scale, as you guys proved in uh, some earlier films where you had very large waves knocking over very small fishing boats and you just need just astonishingly large waves to read on on camera. So I'm wondering, did you have any difficulty with real-world coordinates in selling the size of those alien ships when they did start to appear? I mean, I guess the water helps a little, but it's really hard to have a scale on on waves. Yeah, it is. I mean, there's kind of a kind of a fractal kind of Mandelbrot kind of quality yeah. to oceans, you know, where you can, uh, you keep getting kind of closer to it and then it just reveals more kind of intricate water detail. And, um, we did, 
we did get to, to shoot a lot of water plates from helicopter, and I did do kind of powers of 10 um, scalings on ocean surfaces so we could kind of represent uh, – you we had a good kind of real-world real representation of um, of large-scale kind of uh, ocean you know, surface versus things that are a little closer up. But, um, but you're right. I mean really um, the tricks for kind of injecting and kind of uh, – or, or um, – Cluing in the uh, the viewer into uh, certain scales is the all of the water work that we were doing. Let's say on the ships themselves. So this kind of um, we called it sweating the water that would recycle over the surfaces of these ships. Um, if you were seeing that happen with these very intricate but very slow kind of uh, collisions and splashes along that that you know the outer surface of that rigid body, and then see them slowly fall, reincorporate into that ocean surface, and then slowly upsplash. Those were the cues. Those were the things that told you that this ship was massive and that you were actually quite far away from it. Yeah, because obviously we a battleship. We have two advantages. First, we know a battleship's pretty big, and then secondly, you've got little people running around on the deck of the battleship. So that's always a great sort of clue. But but on your alien ships, you don't really see on the whole, any uh, aliens on the ships. I think there's a couple of shots where they're sort of in in windows of uh, sort of viewing stations. But generally speaking, they were just, you know, dark, massive objects that were wet. And <laughs> especially when they were doing the, um, the sort of hopscotch, jumping around, uh, trying to uh, anticipate where they were going to be section later in the film, it struck me you didn't even have the advantage of any local sort of human ships nearby to give them scale. And those... Those were, I would have thought, really tricky shots. They're kind of belly flopping forward on um, grid coordinates with the whole idea of the uh, incredibly helpful grid of uh, sonar boys. And Mm -hmm. selling those as large must have been fairly hard in review, I would have imagined. They are. I mean, of course, it it always helps to have other things in frame, you know, to kind of – kind of as a scale cue and and all you know at night you know you're you you don't even you lose a lot of those kind of surrounding details so i think the key was for those is to kind of inject as much kind of intricate kind of uh water structure that's at you know that's a a very high frequency and a lot of small structures kind of splashing around it and seeing that that water kind of splash down kind of slowly as a way of kind of uh you know indicating scale i mean for pete you know he wanted those to be um uh almost out of control they're not they're these ships can't fly you know i mean they were inspired by water bugs which could kind of stand you know with the surface tension of kind of on top of the surface of the ocean but this idea of kind of building up energy and then slamming it into the water and 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 shooting yourself up into the air and then really they're almost just free free falling and then kind of splashing back down to the into the water so they became these very kind of dramatic events um but yeah, the you know with with uh, something like an alien ship, you uh, there was nothing necessarily super recognizable to kind of uh, indicate scale. In fact, we we kind of we we noticed uh, in in their design, you know, with our navy ships, they tend to cluster a lot of detail on the top surfaces, like you said on a, on a Missouri, you know, which actually in kind of an old school battleship, it's just there's an amazing amount of kind of 
tiny detail kind of on the top surface, but the hull itself is ba- is very very basic. And we kind of inverted that ratio with our with our stingers with our alien ships. So the top surfaces are not super complex. We do have some armaments and and we have a, a surface quality. These these kind of intricate kind of almost a, like uh, Aztec like designs on the outer surfaces. But the, we kind of put a, we clustered all the detail on the undersides. You know, lots of little lights and lots of uh, ports and and holes and all of these things underneath hoses hanging down so when these things kind of breach or leap in front of you you get these kind of views underneath them and you'll see all this kind of intricate stuff underneath and that was kind of our 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 way of kind of a little bit of a parallel but an inverted parallel to our own kind of navy well if i can swing it around now to the battleship because obviously the film's a lot of fun so i don't want to sound like i'm nitpicking at a physics level but but you had a problem now where you have the real battleship which is great, and so we know the size, and that's all terrific. But you're asking it effectively to do a handbrake turn when they drop the anchor. Yeah, and and, and that's a that's a great fun kick-ass sequence. Don't get me wrong, but it again plays against scale because anyone knows anything about sort of big big battleships turning on those suckers takes forever. So you're requiring it to do a turn that is a bit against its uh, sort of natural momentum size in a fluid that you know. But it has to be a plot point, right? It has to turn quickly. Um, I, I thought maybe you were doing some interesting things with the lensing in terms of getting very wide lenses in there or something because it did have scale. You managed to pull it off, but it, it struck me that it was like a really hard thing to not make that battleship look small as it turned. Or was that yeah, I mean, not a problem? That's that is a you know that's a that's one of the surprises in the movie, and so um, you can't have a surprise take five minutes to kind of come <laughs> about or to kind of rotate the ship around. And it is kind of a handbrake. I mean, it's what's pretty funny is that. Um, when this idea uh, came up and Pete was really excited about it, there were a lot – and, of course, we were working with a lot of uh, – obviously, a lot of Navy guys. Um, everyone had a different term for it. You know, historically, this has been done many times. It's like this kind of anchor drops, uh, you know, uh, ship uh, movement and and in order to kind of get kind of a strategic broadside. And so um, everyone got really, really excited about it. But, yes, we couldn't – you, you – uh, you're kind of you have two forces, you know. You want to it to feel kind of like a massive. I mean, this is, and and we have to remember. I mean, this ship is what a uh, eight hundred feet long. It's um, big, yeah. It, it, it's not, but it's not five thousand feet long. I mean, it, it's it's very large. But you know, we we were pushing it. it was going about forty knots. Um, you know, at, at kind of its at, at its full speed. Then we drop anchor, and we you know, there's a lot of kind of creative cutting. But you're right. Then we'd kind of drop the camera really low. So you're right on kind of the ocean surface and go wide and then have it kind of overtake you in a couple shots. So you get um, – you still get the benefit of uh, of the scale of the water that it's interacting with. Those sims were pretty difficult because those were all kind of happening very, very close to the lens. Um, we also did one thing on the very first uh, of those shots. We treated it as kind of a helicopter shot. You know, we, we did a lot of aerials in this movie and um, kind of recognized that – I mean even a ship going, let's say, 30 knots um, – might not, you know, uh, on an ocean service really doesn't feel that fast, you know. So helicopters, of course, and you're up there, you, you counter it, right? You kind of fly past it in order right. to give it even more speed. And you do these kind of these heroic kind of sweeps around the bow. So we did the same thing kind of with our virtual camera. We kind of approached the ship to kind of in, enhance its speed. And so as the thing is rotating towards us, the camera is kind of still approaching it. It's exactly what you would probably do in a helicopter because you, uh, you know, any director or DP is going to feel like, hey, you know what? We need to inject even more energy into this because we, we know that this is a massive ship doing a, doing a you know, a 
very, very large scale maneuver. Um, so we, we tried to, we were cognizant of that, of those two kind of opposing forces of, 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 you know, energy and speed versus that kind of size thing. But, uh, but we, we, you know, we, 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 we think we kind of got a, a good equilibrium between those forces. Yeah. It seems to me that, uh, that lensing is one of the few things you've got going for. I mean, everything has to be in focus pretty much. Otherwise you, you know, definitely look small. Um, yeah. But yeah, getting that camera move. So that begs the question, did that stuff get really solved in previs? And if it did, it's kind of even hard to tell in previs because you don't have a lot of that stuff, whether, you've, whether you're nailing it in terms of scale. Did, were there any studies in terms of scale uh, when you... There, I mean, well, this, this movie was massively previs and there was some great work, you know, um, Halon and Third Floor. And, and uh, it was a great thing for Pete because he's... He, is creatively is kind of a madman. He's always generating new ideas and is very visual. So he'd love, you know, they could very impressively kind of, you know, uh, put together kind of representations of these ideas that he might have. And, um, you know, and then we, in, in some cases, we even got that camera, you know, let's say from Halon and would start, it start with that or, or base our, our work on theirs or another case we'd kind of say, that's great as a, as an idea. And then we kind of, we'd come up with a different camera or in kind of create our own animation uh, to kind of represent that kind of event. Um, but the, um, we did play with scales. I mean, there were times when, even though everything was kind of um, exactly accurate, and we had our two assets, let's say our, our Missouri versus our flagship, in their their exact scales, that um, it didn't quite uh, give the uh, that that feeling of kind of immensity and scope and scale that was necessary for that particular shot. So we allowed ourselves. There were times when, and you could only do so much, but we just we just say, all right, let's make the ship, uh, you know, a third larger. You know, and resim, or um, and and uh, and just let the ship actually be larger in this shot. So there were times when we kind of took license um, with, uh, especially with uh, with the alien ships, because sometimes you wanted it to feel far away, but also very large. And so we'd kind of sometimes play with scale. I think when I was visiting ILM a little while ago, you had a separate little GPU farm that you were testing for doing just Sims work, because water Sims are in normally more paralyzable than than other things. Are you doing those sims with any GPU acceleration or you just got really long, really hardcore CPU sims? Um, uh, still a lot of it's on the CPU. There are parts of it you could throw onto GPU. And then um, the big the big thing for us in this movie was getting uh, very multi-threaded, you know. So you mm-hmm. have, you have uh, you know, one box with, uh, you know, tons of cores and uh, you could throw um, a sim on it and onto all those cores and multi-threaded. And there were, you know, sims that used to take us a week that we could turn around in hours. And uh, that, um, was a massive breakthrough because we couldn't, uh, we really wouldn't have been able to pull off this show without um, without that kind of technological uh, update to our tools. Um, both in terms of having very fast feedback, um, it, you, you know, as you know, kind of effects can can be iterative. It is a very iterative uh, kind of process where the more you know, if there are times when let's say you simulate something that's like oh that's good but guy yeah, I really wish um, we had represented this upsplash a little more strongly or this happened a little bit sooner and and uh, so we would we could kind of iterate a lower res um, simulation very very fast and kind of iterate iterate that throughout the day and once we kind of settle on something that we really like then we then we'd hit it with a with a, a lot more resolution and see the results of that but even that we could kind of do you know overnight or sometime the next day and we could kind of get a representation of something so um, we were really able to turn around these simulations a lot faster 
The, but no, it isn't. It isn't something you could like. We're not do. You know, you can't throw everything on the GPU. There's just not. There's a lot of the kind of the the, the fluid sim um, uh, aspects that aren't aren't uh, aren't quite conducive for that kind of an entirety yet. For the uh, atomized stuff, when you're getting into mist, and obviously there's lots of other things going on from explosion smoke to sort of propulsion smoke to fires and uh, and stuff. Did you do anything with um, deep compositing, with deep RGBA? Because uh, you've got these rigid body things. Sometimes they're lethal killer bot things flying around. Um, or was it done sort of traditionally with holdout mats and in layers? Uh, for the most part, it was done traditionally. We did um, choose a couple select shots. You know, these were discussions we had early on. I mean, when you are doing a show that has lots of volumetrics and lots of splashes and mist and white water, it seemed to me like a very good candidate for depth compositing. You know, I'm, I'm a compositor by trade. And um, and, and, and we and, love you for that. <laughs> <laughs> there's a... Um, it's it's really rough when it's when uh, you want to change, uh, let's say, just the you know animation of one thing or turn off, let's say, one um, one piece of debris that's a part of millions that are being chucked into the air. But then that's built into like fifty layers of, uh, of volumetric renders that are, are you know uh, that are already kind of represented as three D holdouts. That's pretty painful, you know. So um, we know that uh, we're we are doing depth compositing on other shows and we, you know, um, but it, it, we were going to maybe be selective about it. We kind of tested it out on a couple things, um, but we didn't, we didn't really a- adopt that as a workflow for this show. So, and I'm speaking hy- hypothetically now, obviously, mm-hmm. but if you were doing battleships to return of battleships, uh, would you think of going that route again? I mean, did it feel like a good way forward, but you just didn't after those tests or did you feel like maybe not so much? No, absolutely. I, I don't, I don't think, um, we were already dealing with issues of just uh, of 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 size and oh, huge and, data uh, sets. Yeah, yeah. So um, I mean, you know, if we have one shot. This isn't super representative because it was probably the biggest shot in the movie. That's let's say forty terabytes, um, and that isn't without depth compositing. That's with uh, that's with three D holdouts within the, all the renders. So. Um, I don't think you could kind of blanketly, I think it would be difficult uh, to have done that for all, let's say, a thousand shots. But um, absolutely for certain sequences or certain events, um, especially as you know, with our destruction sequences, we have a lot of ships that we kind of obliterate at sea. And in our uh, reference, we kind of realized just how how diverse and um, and and kind of complex those kind of ship explosions are and and because it isn't just one event it's one event that triggers 50 other events that kind of chain reacts throughout the ship Um, so you have you know different kind of uh, fuel stores kind of exploding and ammunition exploding and lots of gas explosions and all of these things kind of combined so you know we would do we'd start simulating let's in our in our uh, plume tool. We used Cell, which is kind of our um, our tool for kind of doing multiple plume simulations and rendering them as one volume. But then you're also taking that ship and you're uh, you're fracturing it, you're breaking it into a lot of pieces and shooting you know tons of pieces up in the air, and all of those have to be represented within that volume. So absolutely, in those kind of sequences and in those shots, I think depth compositing is a must. This was always going to be a big effects film, and. And let's face it, on the back of, uh, you know, great stuff that you've done before, I was kind of surprised that it was shot on film and only because it just seemed that that was giving you another thing to deal with. D- did that ever come up as a an option to shoot digitally or you just or it just always was slated as a sort of 35mm production? Um, it You know, it was discussed and then, uh, I mean, some of the movie... All- 
all of almost all of the aerials are uh, are digitally acquired, either F thirty five or Alexa. Um, we did do one night sequence um, was shot uh, digitally for you know for kind of some um, good nighttime exposures. Um, but the uh, but yeah, the majority of the show, the film they decided what to shoot to shoot on film and um, and sh- to shoot it anamorphic and and uh, you know Pete wanted lots of uh, lots of kind of the the optical kind of characteristics and and uh, lens flares and everything that kind of comes along with that. Um, Who's to say on on a, on a, a, a hypothetical uh, battleship too if that's if they would make that uh, same decision or you know you could go with uh, you know a larger kind of canvas uh, um, uh, you know digital acquisition and and you know do a big 4K version of this movie you know digital um, again we're not talking about this because we're fishing for battleship too but just we're just talking about it from lessons learned but in this notional concept of doing something again similar do you think that there is an enough of an advantage to shoot that anamorphically with lensing issues that that brings with it or do you think you could get most of that anamorphic look in post i mean i know that the flares are just part of that but yeah you know i um I think, and I'm not, you know, obviously I'm not uh, Tobias, the DP on the show, sure. and that that question is probably better directed to um, to him. And then I think he would say, absolutely, I I think there is uh, something to be said for shooting it on uh, real, um, you know, uh, film, you know, film bodies with the with real anamorphic lenses, and then making us kind of fight to do to uh, integrate all of our work into that and that's something that you know we've done on other movies and when you do it well I do think uh, and 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 that's that's the trick if you can make your uh, your your creatures and your ships and all of your your uh, your effects work integrate well into um, those kind of optically you know, those 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 anamorphic frames with and with all of the kind of uh, the, the characteristics of film and represent that um, it, it can it can look seamless and it could definitely you know and and i think that that's kind of the goal um i think you know you have to decide if you then you know on on another movie if you're going to shoot it um all digitally would you would you want to try to uh emulate a an, an anamorphic movie um in 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 total or in this case we were we we did thanks to digitally acquired footage to make it match the rest of the movie but I don't know. I mean, I, I probably the answer is yes, just because I think there's a there's kind of a, a visual, a film language that we um, that we uh, you know that's established that we you know we see big kind of epic scenes with nice anamorphic lens flares coming off the sun, and you kind of know that you're watching a big summer blockbuster. So it's quite possible that for some time we'll be emulating those kind of optical uh, you know uh, lens characteristics. I mean, I, I, I'm not taking anything away from the DP, but clearly there's just no doubt this film opens and succeeds because of the visual effects it's it's not like you guys contributed i mean you are the reason i wanted to see the film i'm sure i'm not alone in that and and that's because the visual effects are such an integral part of the story it's not you know anything else you you really are providing so much of the story and so clearly your technical requirements are not that secondary i'm just wondering you you know that tracking we spoke about before i mean if those plates were they shot anamorphically because that just makes it even more complicated i mean i'm really they were Absolutely. I mean, it's, somebody owes it's, your trackers some serious beers. <laughs> no, and and uh, of course, you know, it's, it isn't just kind of the um, all of the the kind of the organic kind of lens characteristics that are very kind of asymmetrical across that frame. It's also the fact that it's 
it's anamorphic. So you actually, there's no headroom. There's nothing, there's nothing beyond that frame that you work with. So, um, and as, as usual on, on, on films like this, like any of the transformers or whatever that are shot, uh, anamorphic, you're often breaking out of that, um, that background plate anyway you're 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 extending off of it you're kind of doing kind of virtual camera off of it we did a lot of that on on our ocean footage but no yeah they uh um for the majority of the ocean footage captured either from the barge or from ships was actually shot anamorphic but all of the aerials everything that we shot at rimpac of uh of real navy ships at sea on all of the um ocean plates that uh, that we shot either specifically for shots or for kind of library stuff was shot uh was shot digitally and uh, and on, on larger canvases you know and the, the, some of the great things i mean you know the the you know the alexa footage of a of a navy destroyer you know where you're kind of flying around it uh, off the coast of san diego and i mean it's just beautiful that that uh that imagery and kind of you know the there's very little noise um extremely high you know resolution um and one of the great aspects of that too is we're able to kind of push in on on that image and kind of be able to kind of reframe things very creatively um and so that you know there as as a as an as a as a backplate for an effect shot it's kind of the ideal yeah because i mean the the fact the fact is in the in the past we would have used stock footage to Sort of augment, and it would have looked horrible because it wouldn't have sort of <laughs> held up muster. But here, uh, I don't know. It just felt like the images were very crisp. But I, I should actually, I guess, ask you to articulate for us what navy ships were real and what were digital. We know, obviously, the alien ships were digital. Yeah, we um, we uh, sh- we did digital versions of almost every. Uh, Navy ship in the movie. So we did. There were three Navy destroyers: the the Samson uh, and the John Paul Jones, and then the Miyoka, which is a, a Japanese uh, destroyer, which is uh, um, an Otago class. So we had two Arleigh Burke class destroyers for the U.S. Navy and one Japanese destroyer, and we did digital versions of all of those. So um, there are moments in the movie we kind of like to keep the audience guessing. So there are definitely shots where. You know, one ship is real and the other two are CG, or or uh, you come off of a of a real one onto a, um, a one that we've created, or maybe they're all CG or whatever. Um, we did the aircraft carrier, the Ronald Reagan. We did a um, an a CG asset based on that as well, and so for certain shots, it's CG. Um, and of course, the Missouri, uh, we we kind of depending on shots we did it was it was pretty amazing i mean i remember the day when we had this uh, this meeting and pre-production and they and and they asked me um if how i felt about uh taking the missouri out into open sea and filming it would that be kind of useful for this show and of course <laughs> i was like yes do it we have to do it um it, it, what an amazing kind of opportunity and i i promised pete that not only would we get the best reference in the world but that we would also get backplates you know you, there are, there would be shots that we could get out of that that you could put right in the movie that we could either augment um you know swap out things or whatever so uh, so that's what we did i mean you know the, the ship had been dry docked uh to be kind of retrofitted and painted and once they flooded that dock they uh we, we had a couple tugboats. We tugged it out into open sea, and we kind of did lots of coverage of that ship. So we had lots of footage of the real um, of the real Missouri. But while it was dry docked, uh, it was lidared intensi- in, 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 intensively. So it was we got this massive point cloud representing uh, the Missouri, um, all the way down to kind of little imperfections along kind of the hull and, and dents from you know kamikaze hits during World War II. So we had this incredibly accurate. A representation of that ship as a point cloud and we kind of modeled it to match um 
So, because um, the Missouri is something that you know you could imagine turning up with a camera and taking photos of without raising too many eyebrows. Though obviously, lidar scanning something else and taking it out is is awesome. But in a post nine eleven world, you know, getting full access to actual working Navy ships is yeah. not to be taken for granted. No, it was it was tricky, and and uh, there were lots of um, levels of clearance. Uh, you know, they were the Navy was great, and there was a lot of collaboration. Um, but you did have you uh, there were certain things you could not take pictures of, and and uh, you know you. Uh, definitely we, we would kind of keep uh, maybe people around us, you know, that we could, um, that were liaisons with the Navy so that uh, if people ask questions, we're kind of worried about what we were doing. Um, <laughs> to be said, I mean, that said, uh, I mean, I spent 10 days on, on the ocean on, on three different destroyers, um, an aircraft wow. carrier and a, and a, and a fueler refueler. And, uh, we pretty much had, uh, <laughs> free reign to kind of walk around anywhere on those ships and and uh you know i was you know inside of a five inch gun and down and you know just it, it was pretty amazing access to kind of the inner workings of these ships and honestly um it, it is like something right out of sci-fi i mean the the technology in these ships is quite astounding it, it's it's that and i think just being slightly off subject for a second i think it's also the sense of how many people are on board the ship to keep the ship running as a moving village you know the yeah. idea of all of it, there's a lot of sailors that go into a like especially an aircraft carrier or anything else like that tell me when you were doing that at sea were you shooting and did you have like presumably naval choppers to help shoot or how were you actually capturing your material did you have civilian um we, did, we, had, we had a very small kind of guerrilla crew i think there were about eight or nine of us, um, uh, which is pretty small. We had a couple camera bodies, and uh, we we all kind of helped out. We all kind of carried each other's equipment. And we did have um, a plan for shooting, you know, backplates for effect shots. You know, I, I had lots of previs on my laptop, and we had lots of kind of storyboards of things we wanted to capture. Plus, while we were out there, and this was during the kind of RIMPAC uh, maritime exercises, there are ships doing amazing things um, out there at sea. And so there were times when you would just kind of capture an image because it just happened to be there in front of you. And you'd see, you know, ships all kind of turning in front of each other and aiming in a certain direction and, and uh, you know, and, or three ships lined up, you know, and just kind of a certain way kind of going into the into the sun. And we'd all kind of, we, we'd, you know, it was almost nonverbal. You'd just see it and everyone would just start grabbing equipment <laughs> kind of sink at the front of the ship. But, um, you know, they... We had uh, we had a pretty intense schedule for uh, for filming things. I mean, we you know they do um, a lot of live fire exercises. So, you know, you're standing on an observation wing um, on a on a destroyer, looking down on the missile deck, and uh, they do a little countdown. And one of them opens up, and this wall of fire kind of bursts up in front of you. And we watched a live tomahawk fire right in front wow. of us fire out towards the horizon um, out towards a drone that was kind of incoming so we filmed all of this and then to get from ship to ship um, we would take uh, like Seahawk helicopters so you're actually you know they have these uh, these helipads on the back of destroyers mm-hmm. where uh, these helicopters land and then they'd you know these uh, Navy guys would kind of drag you onto it and strap you down and then they would go from one ship to the next it's pretty amazing I mean the ships never actually stop in the sea I mean they're always running yeah. so you kind of start matching speed um, of a, with a, a, a destroyer kind of going, you know, 30 knots towards the horizon and you land on the on the back of it. We think we have good spatial understanding, but those uh, chopper pilots that land during, you know, 
live manoeuvres during uh, serious wakes and, and washes uh, must have such a great spatial understanding of to uh, get a chopper to land on those small oh, helipads. It's, in, yeah. it's incredible. Yeah, it's incredible. And so we we captured a lot of that footage. A lot of that ended up in the movie. And right. uh, Did you have any problems yeah. with lighting, though? Because, I mean, you don't get to orientate, you know, in one shot they're into the sun and another shot they're sun behind them i mean was there no i know i mean it changes all the time and there we we didn't have uh you know a lot of leeway to kind of ask the captain to kind of (laughs) turn turn to starboard for us but there were times when they actually could and they would we'd say hey you know what could you uh you know do donuts for a while and then um you know for uh, during embarkation while the ships were kind of going out to sea we did have our own camera helicopter which was flying around the ships and we had a camera boat uh you know filming as well once you're out there we were pretty much um we we were just capturing things that they were doing anyway, which are some very interesting kind of exercises out at sea. Um, but yeah, lighting is, is challenging. I mean, we, we, uh, you would work from obviously from sunrise to sunset. Um, and you, um, you would, we did, you know, Dino parks, the, the DP during that they would, you know, you had a bit of a lighting package. We had a lot of little LEDs and stuff. So you could kind of do, do lighting down hallways and we'd spend some time and then, uh, and then shoot these sequences, you know, and the, the Navy guys are great. I mean, we didn't have, uh, actors or extras. I mean, uh, everyone in those shots are all real Navy guys. So the information that you've gathered from the, the ships allows you to recreate digital assets and then, um, what were you actually? What was the pipeline for actually rendering all that out? Was it just a standard render man pipeline uh, to match the lighting between the CG stuff and the live action, which is obviously now, as we can understand, really great footage. Yeah, it, it was. I mean, it was it was a render man uh, render pipeline, and then um, you know, with a lot of the lighting based on kind of environment lighting. So we did a massive amount of HDRI spheres uh, from ships, you know, and you know, you'd be out there with your tripod capturing stuff. Uh, a little bit tricky because, as you know, ships never stand still. <laughs> um, as I learned very quickly out there, you know, everyone's like, "Oh, those ships are huge. You're not going to feel the movement, man. These ships are they bob and you know uh, they they rock all the time." But um, but also then from uh, different locations on Hawaii. So we have, a, a, we, we amassed this great library of kind of, uh, of skies and we would use that to uh, do our base lighting for ships. And that would kind of maybe get you kind of 80% of the way there. And then we do kind of uh, cloud maps for kind of moving shadows and, and kind of dappling light and shadow on ships because, you know, you, it, it, you got there were very interesting kind of lighting characteristics whenever you'd look at what we were capturing on film you'd have you know one ship in the distance would be being blasted with sunlight the ship right next to it would be in shadow you know and and you it's you, these just interesting kind of uh uh light and shadow play that you get when you're out at sea with kind of you know these you know cloudy skies so we would try to represent that in our work as well and kind of keep things feeling very kind of realistic and organic so lighting becomes a big plot point around the uh edge of a headland in uh in hawaii but I, I presume by this point we're having to do everything digitally because that is so specific to the script that's correct yeah so uh, we call that kind of the sun in your eyes sequence and and uh it, it's it's based on kind of a ticking clock which is the rising sun so um we did we we weren't shooting at night necessarily you know we, we did get uh we we have some footage in uh, with you know some overcast kind of footage we have some kind of direct sunlight footage we kind of found the right ones that we might want to uh, time maybe day for night uh, we didn't do a lot of that a lot of that went uh, you know fully um, uh, CG very quickly and then you represent that we did you know there was kind of a nice cove that we filmed um, a lot of running uh, environment spheres uh, in and so we did that within that cove so we'd have kind of a virtual environment 
environment to kind of work within. But then, yeah, the, the actual uh, sunlight, the rising sunlight itself, we kind of, even though we did film a lot of sunrises and we, we capture a lot of that footage, um, you know, for the purposes of that sequence, for the most part, um, that lighting was created. So, that, sorry, just to clear that, the, the, they were obviously close to land. Was that digital land or real land then? It was a combination. I mean, we, right. I, we did get some footage of, um, uh, luckily, when we were shooting in San Diego, there's these islands nearby which have these great kind of reefs. It's very difficult to shoot over reefs on, uh, you know, a, a, along the coast of, of San Diego because that means you're kind of usually flying over people's houses. But out at this island, which was kind of a, a little a nature preserve, uh, we were able to fly right over it and get kind of nice footage of, uh, of water sloshing over. It's very difficult to create uh, in CG, uh, especially on a show where it would, you know, there were almost one-offs. There were only a couple shots that involved that. So we tried to get as much of that uh, footage live action as possible. And then, um, and then there, there were other uh, aspects of those of that reef and that cliff that is uh it, you know was created and you know created digitally in our digimat department i mean we haven't spoken about many of the other aspects in the film and, and i don't mean to uh imply they weren't important obviously there's quite a lot of stuff that actually happens on land with um uh, satellite dishes and stuff but it has been fascinating talking to you about the water side and the ship side of uh of the film i'd really appreciate you taking time to talk to us no it's great thank you very much well thanks to grady and mike for that interview Are you an FX Insider? FX Insider is our membership program that gives members access to special, more in-depth, and members-only content. Details are at fxguide.com. Click the FX Insider tab. You've been listening to the FX Podcast. In addition to this podcast, we do two regular other audio podcasts. The VFX Show reviews visual effects in current releases, as well as classic films. The RC Podcast covers the ever-changing landscape of digital cinematography. If you enjoyed this podcast, we'd also recommend our weekly high-definition video podcast, FX Guide TV. You can find all of these, along with in-depth articles, news, and more at fxguide.com. We also have a sister site, fxphd.com, that offers extensive online visual effects training. This is Jeff Huser for my partners John Montgomery and Mike Seymour. We'll see you on the next FX Podcast. Please let us know if you have any suggestions for stories or future podcasts. You can reach us by clicking the Contact Us link at the top of the homepage. This podcast is copyright FX Guide, LLC. Broadcast or redistribution is prohibited without the expressed written consent of FX Guide.